We're going to enter into a new teaching series in our Sunday morning gatherings around the Gospel of Luke. So if you'll go ahead and open that up in your Bibles, I want to give you a little bit of uh, kind of the why behind the what. Why, as we go into 2018, is going through the Gospel of Luke together such an important thing for us? And I want to share three reasons why I believe it's important for you and it's important for our community. Number one, as we start a new year, it's kind of new year, new you. You probably have new hopes, new plans, kind of new things you're going into. If you're in school, you got new classes that are starting. If you're at work, you might be starting a new role or a new job, or this year might unfold some transition in your workplace. Uh, You might have some new relationships going on, or maybe you're getting married this year, or maybe who knows what'll happen. And there'll be new challenges that you'll face as well. Every year brings its own set of challenges. It's kind of like an adventure, new things that God is calling you into. And so as we enter into all these new things, what I love about Jesus is he gives us an ability not to focus kind of on our future and just get obsessed about what's in front of us, not to focus on our features of, wow, look at me and look at my resume and become prideful kind of jerks. He allows us not to focus on our failures or our fears, but to really focus on him, the faithful one. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about running the race that's before us and says we're to focus our eyes on Jesus. And when we do that, when we fix our eyes on him, we find deep, meaningful relationship with God. We find salvation. We find grace. We find power over sin. We find hope. We find wisdom and guidance. So I don't know of a better investment in your year than to start by saying, this year I'm going to focus on Jesus. The gospel of Luke is the biography of Jesus. So every week when you come, man, it'll be Jesus front and center. So you can know this will be a consistent part of your spiritual diet. I have a friend who's a personal trainer and he is a follower of Jesus and he describes taking time to focus on him like drinking a spiritual protein shake. Like it just gives you strength for the workout that's ahead. So you can know as we gather together, you're getting your spiritual protein shake or your athletic greens. Maybe if you're, you know, into those things, this will help you (laughs) this year. Number two, One of our core values as disciples of Jesus and as a church is that found people find people. That as Jesus has come for us, that there's a call on our lives to be a part of helping other people come to know him, come to experience his grace, to learn the gospel, to get knit in to a spiritual family. And so that's a call on all of our lives. So this year, as you're loving your neighbor, As you're loving your classmates, your sorority sisters, your fraternity brothers, your coworkers, your family, your friends, as you're demonstrating the gospel with your lives, you can know on Sunday morning, this is a place you could bring someone who wants to know more about Jesus. And you can know as we're going through the gospel of Luke, right? It's always a little bit of like, man, if I bring someone to church, what are they going to talk about today and how weird is it going to be? You can know, oh, you've had that thought too, don't worry. You can know in the gospel of Luke, you're going to get Jesus on display front and center week in and week out. 
So I want you to be thinking about who in your life needs like a fresh look at Jesus. And this can be a resource to help you in the call of God on your life. Third reason, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or maybe your New Year's kind of resolution was, I've been out of church a long time, I'm getting back in church, or I wanna raise my kids in church, or whatever it may be, or you're just here because you're like, I, I, I'm interested. I don't know where I'm at, but I'm, I, I wanna take a look at this in 2018. Man, what a great place to start in the Gospel of Luke. Because what you're going to get, again, is Jesus, where he comes from, what he said, what he did. What are the cross, like what's all that cross stuff about? Why, why do Christians believe that he's been raised from the dead? And we're gonna look at some hard questions about maybe some roadblocks or some hindrances that you've probably had of like, well, how could I actually believe that? What would that mean? So as an example, next week, we're gonna take a little pause as we're starting Luke to talk about, well, if I believe this, does it mean I kind of have to throw science out the window? Or how do faith and Christ and science, do they intersect or do they conflict or, or what is that like? And so next week, we're actually gonna spend the whole Sunday talking about faith and science. And I want you to envision Luke is 24 chapters. We're gonna go through it kind of like a road trip where if you've driven to maybe Colorado, you know there's different phases in your trip. We've got a Denver person back there. You know, so you're trying to get out of the Metroplex and you're going fast, right? Just trying to, you know, get out of all the highways, right? And then you get out into West Texas and it seems like it's the same scenery, you know, for a long time. So you make up some games to kind of break up the time. Then you get into Colorado and you start to slow down because it's like, wow, this place is beautiful. As we go through the Gospel of Luke, there'll be some places where we move a little faster. There'll be other places where we stop and slow down because like, man, we want to really focus in on this and make sure everybody gets it. So we're gonna go on a road trip together. All right, and we'll bring Stephen Murray and he'll make us all laugh uh, with his videos too. Okay, so with that, let's turn to Luke chapter one, verse one, and we're gonna read verse one through four today. This is the opening of this biography of Jesus. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, if you'll notice on the screens, there's a set of words in this passage that are bolded in yellow. That's me kind of putting them in yellow for us to focus on for a minute as we're getting introed in to the Gospel of Luke. Notice the first thing that we see here is that this is a narrative, right? So whereas some places in Scripture we have kind of wisdom like Proverbs, other places we have poetry like Song of Songs or the Psalms, what we see here is a narrative. It's the story, the history of Jesus' life, or that's what Luke is telling us he's about to unfold for us. Number two, it's related to the things that have been accomplished among Luke and his companions. Maybe a better way to translate that would be fulfilled among them. It's gonna be focused on Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, 
and his resurrection and what that means. Why is this? Why do Christians believe that's such a big deal? It's going to be based on, he says here, eyewitness account. So Luke is saying that he's not kind of just making this stuff up, but he's contending that he's going to the eyewitnesses. He's going to the apostles and he's writing down the story of Jesus as it actually happened. You can see in verse three that Luke says he's followed this story closely for some time past. And as we read through Luke, you're gonna see that he is a man that is attentive to detail. He's not someone that glosses over things, but if you're a detail-oriented person or you have a friend that is, you'll know he's one of those type of people. He's locked in on the details. And lastly, uh, he's writing this as an orderly account, not necessarily chronologically, but he's taking the life of Jesus and he's putting it together so that in this case, Theophilus, or in our case, us, might have certainty concerning the things believed. It wouldn't be like, well, I heard that from somebody. Maybe my mom or grandmother told me that, or maybe my pastor said that. I've heard that before. But he's trying to tell Theophilus, hey, what you believed about Jesus, this is actually what happened so that you could have certainty. He's building Theophilus' faith that it's not founded on fantasy, but it's founded in reality. Those are some bold claims, right? That's what Luke is laying out for us. And if you think about it, it's like, wow, some really uh, bold claims right there that he makes, right? And we sit in 2018 and we kind of take something like this uh, and we put it in one of three buckets, right? First bucket is the fake news bucket, okay? Fake news, right? It's the 2017 dictionary, Collins Dictionary Word of the Year, okay? It's the, 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 the biggest word in 2017 and it means false, often sensational information disseminated under the guise of news reporting, okay? So you probably have seen this. I'm gonna give you a couple of the top fake news stories of 2017. If you're on Facebook, these might have flown around your feed. Number one, morgue employee cremated by mistake while taking a nap, okay? Fake news story, surprise, surprise, but this is one of the most shared fake news stories on Facebook in 2017. Second example of fake news, President Trump orders the execution of five turkeys pardoned by Obama. Another fake news story, right? It's kind of made up, looks like news, but it's not really based in reality. Third one, elderly woman accused of training her 65 cats to steal from neighbors, right? Fake news story, okay? Uh, this is kind of genre that's out. Now, those are funny, and we can look at them and be like, yeah, I mean, of course this is a joke. But you realize this year uh, has been dominated by claims that various stories are fake news, that they're put forth with an agenda, but they're not rooted in reality. And many people, and you might have this thought or have had someone share this with you, is that this gospel of Luke or the New Testament in general is fake news. Like, let's read from uh, Sam Harris. He's a well-known kind of uh, atheist talking about this. And he says this. He said, tell a devout Christian that his wife is cheating on him or that frozen yogurt can make a man invisible and is likely to require as much evidence as anyone else. Tell him that the book he keeps by his bed was written by an invisible deity who will punish him with fire for eternity if he fails to accept its every incredible claim about the universe 
and he seems to require no evidence whatsoever. So first question that we need to look at, first bucket, we might put this in is, is this, is Luke's gospel, is it fake news? Is it kind of a made-up story that someone somewhere kind of put out on the proverbial internet and has taken on a life of its own, as Harris contends? Or is it maybe a different category? Second category that this might go in is truth with a lowercase t. So this type of truth, I'm going to give you an Oprah quote where she says, whatever your secret, live your own truth. Life is too short, right? This idea is, hey, you have your truth, I have mine. Maybe we don't, maybe it is fake news, maybe it actually happened, I don't really care. If this works for you, cool. If it brings you comfort, if it brings you hope, if it's meaningful for you, hey, live your truth. And I'm gonna live mine. You stay in your lane, to quote LeVar Ball. Don't get into mine, stay in your lane and we're good. If your little, if your little T truth kind of impinges on my truth, we've got problems, but as long as you stay in your lane, we're good. It's not meant to, who cares if it's true? It's meant to provide emotional comfort for us. And maybe that's a bucket that we put this in or that you might have thought about the gospel of Luke in. Third bucket that we could put it in is truth with a capital T. This means not subjective, your truth, my truth, but this is objective truth that bears claim on all of us. Let me give you an example. This afternoon, if I were to go to the basketball gym and I were to sing R. Kelly's I Believe I Can Fly over and over and over again, and then I would go to try and dunk a basketball, no matter how much I sang that song, it will not happen. I have tried this many times, right? So even if I believe, hey, this is my truth that I'm living for me, right? It, the law of gravity uh, is going to... Uh, um, come upon me one way or another, right? Doesn't matter how much I believe. That's a capital T truth. And what Luke is putting forward here and what Christians believe is that this gospel, this biography of Jesus is not fake news. It's not kind of subjective truth. Hey, if you like that, that's cool. I'm gonna do my deal. But that it's objective truth. That's what Luke is saying. Now, why in the world would he believe that? And if, if I were to explore that option, like if I were to be intellectually honest and say, hey, this could be any of those three things, right? I'm just gonna open my mind. The fear, probably for many of us, is does that mean that I have to become like this little cartoon character that you'll see in just a minute? Like clamp the Bible over my mind kind of throw out reason, throw out objectivity? Do I have to just, I don't know, uh, um, you know, become narrow-minded, become judgmental, uh, eat at Chick-fil-A, like all of these stereotypes, become Ned Flanders off of The Simpsons? Does that, is that what that mean? Do I have to throw out science and all that type of stuff? And yes, we'll use the Nacho Libre scene next week. Uh, it, you know, is that a fear? Is that what it means to actually believe this? Okay, so let's look at what merit might we have to take any of these claims? Where do we put this intro to Luke? Where do we put Luke's gospel? So the first question that we ask ourselves when we look at our Bibles, when you open to the gospel of Luke, whether kind of in a paper copy or a digital copy, is what we have today 
what was actually written back then, like actually what Luke wrote. Or has it kind of been like the telephone game? You probably played that where like it gets passed around a circle and it kind of adjusts and changes over time. If we're gonna seriously look at this and say that there's you know, a way that we could look and evaluate this, we have to decide is what we have now what was originally put forward. If you've read the Da Vinci Code, let's give, give you a quote that kind of summarizes the question around that. The Bible is a product of man, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has been evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book, right? That's a critique that either maybe you've thought or heard someone level against the Bible. It's like, we don't even have what was originally there. It's just kind of been adjusted, manipulated over time. Is that true? Well, we don't have, and when I say we, I don't mean like Antioch in the back closet over there, but I mean scholars, the world in general. We don't have the original copy that Luke wrote. We don't. But we also don't have the original copy of lots of works from antiquity, right? We don't have the original copy of Alexander the Great's biography. We don't have the original copy of Plato's Republic. All these different works that, are, that scholars hold in high esteem, in high regard for history as being accurate transmissions of what happened, we don't have the original uh, manuscripts of. Why is that? Well, think about how they were written back then. They weren't like typed in Word and saved to Dropbox. They were written on little scraps of papyrus, right? Things that would get uh, destroyed over time. As different wars and empires happened, there would be whole uh, libraries that would be burned and would be destroyed. And so many of our greatest works uh, from antiquity have been, the originals have been destroyed over time, okay? But what we do have in terms of the Gospel of Luke is that scholars and archaeologists have found an incredible amount of manuscripts from in and around the time of the original that were copies of the Gospel of Luke. And it wasn't like they came in one room and found 30 copies kind of all together, right, where someone could have just kind of twisted it on their own, but they found them all over the Middle East at different time periods and different places, but all within kind of the era that the original was written. And those different copies have such a surprising amount of synchronization, meaning like they're not like, oh, this one's so different than that one. They're like, I think the, the stat I saw was 99.5% lineup. In fact, it's the most strongly attested to book from antiquity. Like it's the one that we have the most confidence that what we have in our possession is actual what was written of any ancient manuscript or book. And don't take my word for it. Let's look at Sir Frederick Kenyon. He was a paleographer and the director of the British Museum. For us Americans, think like Smithsonian. Paleography, he studied ancient manuscripts, particularly in the genre around biblical times. And he was knighted for his service. Now that's something I think we Americans should adopt, just knighting people. We'll do that in a different week. But so Sir Frederick Kenyon, here's what he said. He said, the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us 
substantially as they were written, has now been removed. So here we have an educated scholar of renown who spent his life studying this, not Dan Brown trying to write a popular novel, but but an actual scholar, reason, logic, saying, yeah, you could be certain what we have in our Bibles today is, uh, is a substantially as it was written when Luke penned it. So we can have confidence that what we have is what was written when Luke originally authored it. Okay, so second question, you know that, okay, well, what about the gap between Jesus' life and when this was written? Couldn't the story have kind of taken on a life of its own over time, kind of like a fishtail? Or if you get me talking about my high school athletic feats, right? They might get exaggerated as time goes on. You do that too. You know, it's just kind of like life. You know, you just add, add a couple inches to your height, a couple pounds to your bench press. Maybe this got added on about Jesus. Like maybe he did pray for someone to be, you know, that was sick. But then over the couple years after his death, maybe it got elaborate. Oh, not just prayed for him, but they got healed. Like the story kind of like a fishtail, right? Could that be uh, what happened? How do we know the legend of Jesus didn't grow between his death and the time the gospel was written? Well, to realistically look at that question, we want to ask ourselves, was the author of this biography in a position to know what he or she was talking about? As an example, if I were to come and to talk to you today about Bitcoin and why you should invest in Bitcoin, you could talk to me for a few minutes and be like, that guy has no uh, understanding of how it works. We don't need to listen to him. He's just kind of off in la-la land. What do we know about the author of Luke? Was he in a position to write authoritatively on these events? Well, here's what we know about Luke. We know that he was a ministry associate of Paul the Apostle. When you read through the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, they were partnering together in ministry. You know, Paul the apostle was one of the kind of laid the foundation for Christianity, right? You know that Luke was with him. We know that Luke was a doctor. And when you read through the gospel of Luke, he includes more medical details. You can just tell that's the way his mind works. We know he was a man of precision. He pays attention to detail. There's uh, uh, archaeological references, geographical references, cultural references. Let me give you just, a, just an example. He writes about things like the depth of a local harbor, uh, weird governmental titles, local slang, strange and noteworthy geographical features of local areas. Like you get the idea that he was there and he was attentive to detail, like he was on the inside of where this story actually happened. So let's read from Dr. John McRae. He's a professor at Wheaton College. He has a PhD in these matters from the University of Chicago. And he, when networks like A&E or the National Geographic are doing Bible series, he's the guy they call to get a true sense of what historically happened in in that time period. And here's what he said. The general consensus of both liberal and conservative scholars is that Luke is very accurate as a historian. He's erudite, he's eloquent, his Greek approaches classical quality. He writes as an educated man and archeological discoveries are showing over and over again that Luke is accurate in what he has to say. So what's McCray saying? 
He's saying from a, from a scholarly standpoint, based on Luke's education level, based on his writing, based on the references that he makes, you get the idea this is not someone far removed from the events, but this is someone who had local inside knowledge, authentic knowledge of what happened. So next thing that we could use in trying to decide, well, uh, how do we know this didn't take on a life of its own? is actually looking at the stories, the, the narrative itself. And if you or I were kind of whitewashing an event in the past to make it look really good, we just include our highlight reel, right? We would include our fumbles and our embarrassing moments and the things that we kind of like to put behind us. We talk about how we made the game-winning basket, not how we fell on our face in front of the cheerleader that we liked. We just would leave that out. When you read through the Gospels, though, you see that this isn't there. They actually include lots of embarrassing details that anyone who, who was legendary kind of making things look better than they were would have changed. So let me give you an example. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, he was the disciple of Peter, right? So the Gospel of Mark is largely influenced by the Apostle Peter. So you'd think it would make Peter kind of look good. Well, in the Gospel of Mark, you see Jesus telling Peter, hey, the way you're thinking, get behind me, Satan. Like Jesus calling Peter out as thinking like Satan. That might be a story that I left in the past if I was you know, elaborating, kind of making this into a legend, and I had influence over it, right? You probably would too. What about Peter when uh, Jesus is being tried? It records a story of Peter denying Jesus. Embarrassing detail. And not just denying him to someone like this physically impressive, but denying him to a, a young slave girl, a grown man, afraid for his life, denying Jesus to a young slave girl. That might be a detail that we left out if we were kind of whitewashing and turning this into a legend, right? Uh, it's not just about uh, the disciples, though. It's about Jesus as well. You realize uh, as Jesus is going to be crucified, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's so in anguish and agony over what's before him that he prays and it says that he was like sweating drops of blood and he's asking God the Father, if possible, could you remove this ministry assignment from me? Like, could it happen a different way? That's kind of embarrassing for the hero of the story because it makes him look weak. It makes him look like anxious and fearful. Like we like our heroes like William Wallace, who looks death in the face, yells freedom, paints his face, and rides into battle, right? Or Maximus in Gladiator, that's just like this tough dude that doesn't care and is willing to take on anything. Those are the type of heroes that we are drawn to. And what we see in Jesus is not this just like, I'm gonna, I don't even care, I'm gonna run through this wall. But we see in that moment this uh, frailty, and like, that's an incriminate, you'd be like, man, I'm gonna just wipe that out if I had say over the deal. Another one that's kind of embarrassing, in their culture, that's different than ours, the testimony of women was looked down upon. It was seen as unreliable. You realize who the gospels say were the first witnesses of the resurrection. It wasn't the disciples, it was the women that were accompanying them. Right, And in their day, that would have been totally dismissed, totally written off. If you were trying to kind of rewrite the story to make it more credible, you would have totally had prominent men 
Or maybe the disciples who said, yeah, we were the first ones to see the resurrected Jesus. But no, to have women. Again, in our day, it doesn't matter much, but in their day, that just wouldn't have been a detail that you would include in. So when you realize, you read the gospels, there's a lot of things that if these were becoming uh, uh, embellished, that you for sure would have moved out. Now, next question that you're asking yourself if we're saying, well, could this be legend or falsified is what's the genre in which it's written, right? If you've seen Stranger Things, right, they nail the 80s in cultural references, right? But they're not intending to write Stranger Things as history. It's a story. It's meant to entertain. So Luke may nail geographical references, may nail like cultural idioms, but is he intending to write this as a history, or is this some different genre, maybe poetry or myth or legend? And what we saw from the outset is that Luke is saying, no, this is history. And interestingly enough, scholars uh, who are well-versed in this time period say, yeah, the introductory paragraph of the Gospel of Luke is the standard opening for a history of that time period. It's the way if you were writing a history that you would start it out. So Luke is saying, yes, this is a history. The genre fits that. And C.S. Lewis, uh, the famous C.S. Lewis who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, was a professor at Oxford, and had given his life to studying literature and ancient literature. He commented on the genre of the Gospels themselves. And he said this, as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. Interesting. So Lewis, an expert on myth and legend and that type of genre of literature, says this is not legend. This is not myth. And interestingly enough, Lewis himself converted to Christianity as a result of his studies and inquiry. So next question might be, well, do the authors of the document have a motive for fabricating what they wrote? Like we get really nervous of anyone who stands to gain from putting out a particular point of view. Like if, if you realize, oh man, they're just doing this to get rich or they're just doing this to get famous or they're just doing this to win the affection of some you know, male or female romantically. Like we get nervous when the motivation could be gold girls or glory, right? And so would Luke, would the other kind of writers of the gospels, would they have had motivations that might compromise their testimony? Maybe you've thought about that. Well, interestingly enough, what we see in this is that Christianity uh, for the first 300 years of its existence was brutally persecuted. Uh, one example, the emperor Nero of Rome at one point had a dinner party outside, said, hey, I need some lights for this dinner party. Round up the Christians. We're gonna tie them to the stake and we're gonna light them on fire to be the lights at our dinner party. Christians were eaten by lions. They were uh, crucified. I mean, there was all this suffering that they went through. So you weren't writing this thinking, man, I'm gonna get rich off this tell-all biography. You weren't writing this thinking, man, I'm gonna get the girls from putting out this story. You weren't writing this from saying, man, I'm gonna get glory and people are gonna look at me. And Luke and the other apostles are essentially signing their death warrant to this. 
And we're used to revolutions where like the leaders stay back and they kind of hide in a compound or a castle and they send out the expendables, you know, to, to, to be killed. But that's not what happened with Christianity. Uh, of the 11 remaining disciples, 10 of them, or remaining apostles, leaders of the church, 10 of them were martyred. They gave their lives for this testimony. So there's no way that you could see some alternate motive that would corrupt Luke's story. Uh, we've got a couple more questions as we're trying to decide where to put this. Uh, are there other sources that reinforce this? Like if you came to me and told me, hey, I met God uh, down there under the bridge at 635 and 75, and I wanna tell you about him, we'd all be like, um, I, you know, maybe if God really came, there might be more people than just you that met him. You know, we just get skeptical of that, right? With this gospel of Luke, are there other sources that talk about Jesus in this way? And this is really helpful because we read at the beginning uh, one of the quotes about the Bible kind of descending from on high altogether, but that's not how it came together. You realize the New Testament, like the gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the different letters, they weren't put together in this form, like bound together as like a compendium uh, until much later. They were initially written and circulated as individual manuscripts. So Luke, as he ministered with Paul, wrote the gospel of Luke and distributed it to their, the places, the churches they were ministering to, right? John was written to a different group of people. Mark, a different group of people under Peter's ministry. Matthew, a different group of people. They weren't kind of all together. And it wasn't like they had a big Google Doc where they got synced up in the sky. These were done like on their own, researching and then writing out the true stories of what happened. So when we look at the four gospels that were combined into one book much later to say, hey, these are the real deal. These are what are attested to. These are the verified gospels. What we see in them is a remarkable degree of, of telling the same story. Are there variations? Yes, but those variations actually serve to strengthen the case that, these, that this testimony wasn't combined and put together by someone much later. Let me give you an example. Simon Greenleaf, he was the founder of Harvard Law School, and he was an expert in kind of evidence that was permissible in court, began to research the New Testament, and he actually converted to Christianity as a result of his studies. And here's what he said. He said, there's enough of a discrepancy in the four gospels to show that there could have been no previous concert among them, and at the same time, such substantial agreement as to show that they were all independent narrators of the same great transaction. You get what he's saying? He said, it's synced up enough to know they're talking about the same events, but there's enough differences to know they didn't get together and kind of, okay, let's make sure we get our story straight. And he gave his life to Christ through it. Uh, what about non-Christian or enemy sources? Like, do we have references to Jesus outside the Bible? We do. What we have is enough to know that Jesus was a wise and revered teacher, that he had a reputation for performing miraculous feats, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate on the eve of the Passover, and that he was worshiped as God by those who regarded him as the resurrected Messiah. So could have this been elaborated? Well, we can see that we would have strong reason to believe that, no, this is an authentic account 
of what happened. This is an authentic account of the life of Jesus. History. T, truth. Capital T, truth. Now, the last question that I want to address before we close is, well, if I open my mind to actually really looking into this and pursuing this, does this mean that I'd have to abandon my mind, hate science, be judgmental, vote Republican, and eat at Chick-fil-A to believe this? Not that any of those things are bad, but you know the Ned Flanders stereotype, right? Does, is that what it means to be a Christian? And what we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is for all people. I mean, he's going after the rich and the poor. He's going after the young and the old. He's going after prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners and religious people and all sorts in between. And so what's awesome about this is that all of us get an opportunity to know Jesus. And as we come to know him, just like any relationship, it transforms us, but not into a certain place that we prefer to eat or a certain you know, way that we have to dress or whatever, but it transforms us into his image and his character and his passions and his loves. It changes who we are and we reflect the glory of God. So I wanna close uh, with that. Next week, we're gonna tackle, well, there's a whole lot of miracles in here and I believe in science, so what do I do with that? So we're gonna focus on next week and then we'll kind of journey on through the gospel of Luke. And I'd love to invite you, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, to say, hey man, I'm gonna jump into this and I wanna explore this and set my eyes on Jesus. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we're going to uh, dismiss. Jesus, we love you. Thank you. Uh, that you want to reveal yourself to us, Lord. And thank you that we have confidence to believe uh, that these words that we're reading are true and meaningful and real and impact us. In Jesus' name. Well, I hope that encouraged you. If this message spoke to you, if God's doing something in your life, I'd love for you to send us an email and let us know. You can do that by just hitting reply on any of the emails you get from us. Wait, what's that? You don't get emails from us. Oh man, why don't you go to our website and you can sign up for our community newsletter. Once a week, you'll get updates on what's going on, what God is doing in our midst. And we would love for you to be a part. Uh, if you've enjoyed this series of podcasts, love for you to go on iTunes and leave a review. It helps other people find out uh, about this stuff. Love you guys and we'll see you next week.